Welcome to Coping with Ghosting, the show that provides hope, healing, and understanding for anyone who has been ghosted. I'm your host, Greta, and today I'm diving into the topic of self-validation. My guest is Dr. Josh Miramelli, who's a licensed clinical psychologist with a private practice in West Los Angeles. He has worked in the fields of mental health and addiction for over a decade, and he has an affinity for and working with members of the LGBTQIA plus community. Dr. Josh, I am honored to welcome you back to the podcast. Greta, thank you so much for having me on. It is an honor to be here. And I'm just so grateful to be able to talk about such a relevant theme and topic. So thank you. You have a great inspirational Instagram post about self-validation. Could you explain what self-validation is and how it could help people who have been ghosted? Absolutely. So Self-validation is, you know, in some ways, kind of a radical acceptance of ourselves. It involves accepting our emotions and experiences rather than judging them or even attempting to change them. You know, acknowledging all of our emotions, even the uncomfortable ones, and really giving ourselves permission to feel and be however we are in that given moment. Mm-hmm. So noticing and accepting feelings. Can you explain that? I mean, how do we yeah. accept challenging feelings? It's so tempting to push them down and bottle them up. Yep. Uh, yes. It's, it's a really great question. So, you know, in the same way that we might see and perhaps even acknowledge in some way somebody at a party who we're not huge fans of. Maybe they mistreated us. We don't like them for whatever reason. They cut us off in traffic on the way to the party and thought they'd get away with it, you know? Um, So noticing and accepting uncomfortable feelings would be the equivalent of noticing and accepting that this person is at the party. So, you know, we don't need to embrace uh, the feeling or this person. We don't need to dance with them or the feeling all night, Uh, but we can experience something to the effect of, okay, I see you, you know, regret, or I see you, uh, Rita, you know, I know that you're there, you're talking to somebody over there by the punch bowl. Uh, Now you're moving closer. Okay, let's not panic. Let's say hello, and then walk away and, and move forward. So just like we can notice and accept that someone who makes us uncomfortable is in the same room with us without necessarily wanting to rekindle a relationship, we can do the same with uncomfortable emotions. So it's really just acknowledging that that the emotion or set of emotions are there. It's a way of reclaiming our experiences as being true for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so when we do notice and accept these feelings, are there any, do you have any suggestions on the healthiest way to kind of process them? I always say feel mm-hmm. to heal. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts mm-hmm. are on that. Yeah, I, I 
totally agree with that sentiment. Um, And look, I think the thing that we forget about emotions is that there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And when we're in the, you know, middle of them, the really uncomfortable emotions, it can feel torturous. And so one of the things that I tell folks to remember is that we tend to not get in quote unquote trouble either in our relationships with others or ourselves when we're navigating a given emotion. We tend to create difficulty for ourselves when we attempt to either conceal the emotion with a different one. You know, I'm really angry and hurt, but instead I'm going to pretend to be really chipper and act as if, right? Or I'm feeling really angry and hurt and so I'm going to down a bottle of, you know, vodka to numb the pain, those create ancillary issues. Plus, we're still left with the feelings we are attempting to cover up to begin with. So I like the idea of giving ourselves a time limit. You know, today for 25 minutes, for 40 minutes, I'm going to put on, you know, music that sort of resonates with my emotional state. I'm going to give myself permission to just feel the feelings, maybe write down some of my thoughts, maybe, you know, close my blinds and just allow myself to really just be in it. And then when the alarm goes off at the end of 25 minutes or 30 minutes, I'm going to walk into the other room and engage in some self-care, whether that's going for a walk or eating a nice meal or, you know, writing down a gratitude list It's creating space for it and then giving ourselves permission to lovingly move forward just for now, right? It doesn't mean the feelings won't be revisited, but creating some limits around how long we're going to sit in the space with it for that day. That's wonderful advice. Thank you for that. I think I'm definitely going to apply that to my life (laughs) for sure. Yes. We can all benefit. Right. Um, Going back to your Instagram post, you mentioned let go of what injures us. And I know letting go is a huge deal. I mean, let it go, let it go, like the song. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's easier said than done. And I just wonder what (laughs) what tips do you have for listeners around letting go of the people that ghosted them? Yeah. You know, it's it's really an interesting and profound question. Letting go of our ghosts or the impact that being ghosted um, means, in essence, grabbing a hold of something. And what that something is, is our pain and our experience and our recollection and reclaiming for ourselves a sense of empowerment you know, that we may have placed into the hands of someone else, someone who really didn't deserve to hold that level of power. And so, you know, one of the things that is really important and that I've personally benefited from is empathy, you know, practicing a state of considering for a moment that the person who caused us injury may not have learned 
healthy attachment or skills to effectively communicate their needs or boundaries. And most people who engage in ghosting are really suffering themselves. They're ill-equipped to express or convey boundaries or needs. You know, in childhood, these are people who may have held boundaries and had them dismantled by entrusted caretakers. So, um, you know, letting go of our ghost is about really looking at ourselves in the mirror and validating our experiences, not trying to make sense of why someone may have ghosted us because making sense of why we were ghosted is almost like drinking that, you know, gallon of vodka, right? It's numbing the pain that we're in. It's still our way of trying to metabolize and maybe even modify our emotional experience, which can actually be invalidating. That's so well said. Drinking, trying to understand why we were ghosted is like, drinking a bottle of vodka, it is, uh-huh. it makes us just, it, it makes me feel like I'm going mad, honestly, Yeah, because yes. I don't know the answer and I could just keep on going down that rabbit hole forever. So. Right. Yeah. And, and what I think we tend to mislead ourselves into believing is that if I only had that answer, then it would make sense, the pain would be less, or I could maybe, you know, move on and forgive this person. The truth is, is that there's never a valid explanation that will help us to heal other than just accepting that the person who engaged in this pattern of behavior didn't have the ability to communicate more constructively with us, why they were needing space or to take a break. Right. Right. That's really valuable information. Next on the self-validation list is prioritize needs and asking for what we need. And so after I was ghosted by a person I was dating, I couldn't eat sleep or even do really well at school because I just felt paralyzed. And at the time I didn't even know I was being ghosted. Honestly, I just thought the person had died and I looked online for his obituary. So what do people who have experienced trauma need the most? Mm. Beautiful question. You're putting me on the spot here. No, I'm totally <laughs> choosing. Um, it, it's a really wonderful topic. You know, essentially, what's the first step in navigating, metabolizing, and coping with trauma, grief, loss? Um, you know, the first step that's helpful, right? Because we know a lot of unhelpful steps, is um, to really acknowledge that a traumatic event has taken place. So that would involve acknowledging that there are, you know, a number of common experiences which emerge in the aftermath of trauma, which can include, you know, things like um, experiencing distressing recollections, having intrusive thoughts, or even unpleasant and, you know, maybe vivid dreams related to the event, the ghosting. Um, also a sense of hypervigilance or being on guard is in some ways very common too, 
right? So some people also might blame themselves for the ghost for the ghosting that occurred. Um, and we may tell ourselves things like, I should have seen it coming, or, you know, what's wrong with me that I allowed this to take place. So, you know, the first step in navigating a traumatic experience is understanding and accepting that one took place. Next, uh, it can be helpful to really talk about what happened with the right people. So, you know, entrusted friends, family members, loved ones, um, though we may be tempted to avoid talking about it, research has shown that in the right forum and with the right people, talking about painful events can actually help us to build resilience. And resilience is so critical. It's one of the most helpful traits that we hope to instill in our children as they grow up, the capacity to fall down and stand back up. So, you know, on the note of resilience, I think remaining present with ourselves, that's another really critical part of healing from a traumatic experience. So that would involve, you know, consciously um, reducing activities or use of substances, which might prompt a short-term getaway from our painful emotions, mm -hmm. you know, though it can be tempting to drink the pain away, doing so invariably worsens the distress and amplifies any negative beliefs about ourselves and our, our coping resources. So remaining present could also involve sticking to a routine and the daily schedule. And, you know, the last thing I'll say is, interestingly, physical activity is really critical. Um, and one thing we've learned is, you know, this, this notion, which I'll explain, of therapeutic tremoring. So basically, when animals experience a traumatic event, it, you know, whether that's being wounded or witnessing um, a um, close um a close um, figure, right? Another animal in their pack or parent, um, when they've witnessed some type of traumatic event, they literally shake, um, which is our body's natural way of reducing tension and returning our systems to a state of homeostasis. So this is what we refer to as therapeutic tremoring, and this can enhance our healing process by decreasing activity in the amygdala, which is the part of our brain that's responsible for the fight, flight, freeze response. So in humans, um, therapeutic tremoring may come in the form of yoga, meditation, walking, um, deep breathing. These are all methods that we can intentionally activate moments of mindfulness and reduce the state of hyperarousal in our systems. Those are great insights. I agree. It is essential to keep your body and mind healthy after something like this happens. So thank yes. you for that. You're so welcome. Yeah, it's it's critical. And by the way, movement, emotional or otherwise, doesn't mean running away from the experience, but we actually process more constructively and in a more healthy way when we're not just stuck in it. Right. But it's it's about being moved through it at a healthy pace with entrusted folks around us. And, you know, sometimes seeking professional support is a really valuable resource, too. I agree. 
Do you have any availability in your practice to see people remotely? Can you, are you taking on new clients? It's a very fascinating question. Um, the answer is I have limited space right now. Um, as I'm uh, stepping into this role of a new parent, we have a four month old, um, beautiful boy son. Um, I'm trying to preserve evening times, um, you know, for bath time and, uh, <laughs> you know, feeding and burping and all that good stuff. But I do have some, some space available and I am seeing folks in, um, who are based in California, which is where I'm licensed, uh, remotely. Perfect. Thank you for that. In the Instagram post, you mentioned changing our minds. Can you explain how this all relates to self-validation and ghosting all of that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, the capacity to change our minds based on new information represents, number one, an element of being human. And secondly, an important aspect of just self-validation in general and taking good care of ourselves. Because changing our minds helps us to reduce our aversion to fluctuations in general and helps us to strengthen our confidence in ourselves. So we end up being able to see an issue from varying perspectives, right? One that we may have once known and the new one we've come to adopt. And that can be helpful in terms of engaging in perspective taking as well. So whether we're taking the perspective of, um, you know, establishing empathy or forgiveness for our ghost or for ourselves or another person. When we change our minds, we invite the possibility that there can be competing sometimes beliefs or ideas that are both entirely true, right? They're not mutually exclusive. And one of the things that we do when we're ghosted in an effort to sort of self-protect is again, to say things like, I should have seen this coming. I should have known better. What's wrong with me? And the truth is, is that nothing's wrong with this person, right? What's wrong with us is, you know, quote unquote wrong is our tendency to have new information and make the assumption that we should have had access to knowing this before it became available to us. We didn't know that the person who ghosted us was capable of these patterns. And so we made informed decisions along the way that did not include or encompass this newfound sense of information. So changing our minds is really important from the standpoint of resilience and from self-validation and also just being compassionate toward ourselves in general. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I remember thinking for the longest time, you know, I shouldn't have said this thing in front of my ghost. It's probably why I was ghosted, but now I have a completely mm-hmm. new way of seeing that. I think right. I did the best I could at the time. What I said had nothing to do with me being ghosted. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And and I think this fault finding is something that trauma survivors in general try to or, or tend to engage in. It's our way of creating a degree of control, 
right, surrounding factors that we do not have the ability to control, which are people, places, things, mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately, we don't have that that ability. And that can feel really overwhelming because it means that there's a possibility we may experience grief in this way again, which is very difficult to make sense of. Right. Yeah. Finally, on the self-validation list, you mentioned engaging in self-compassion, which we just touched on. I wonder if you could define or explain more about self-compassion and some more ways that people can practice it. Yep, absolutely. So, I mean, look, in a nutshell, I would define self-compassion as being more gentle with ourselves, more kind and uh, understanding of ourselves, accepting that we're not perfect, and really understanding that there is potential for learning and growth in every quote-unquote mistake that we make, in every blunder uh, that we um, make, and in every hardship that we encounter. So, to practice uh, self-compassion may involve practicing being more forgiving of ourselves for mistakes, quote unquote, that we've made. I mean, and I say quote unquote, but sometimes we like objectively do make mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's okay. Practice forgiving ourselves. It's not invalidating the mistake that was made, but it's about inviting a sense of growth that can take place from mistake making, which is learning how to maybe avert and avoid doing that again in the future, or just understanding our patterns more. And if we are so shaming of these blunders, it's impossible to learn and evolve from those, you know, quote unquote mistakes. So, you know, the self-forgiveness is huge. I would say embracing challenges and obstacles, you know, this notion that even being ghosted can serve as a catalyst for growth and learning, you know, more specifically about our interpersonal needs doesn't take away how much it freaking sucked. And it can still be an opportunity for information acquiring that we would not have had in the absence of this experience. The other thing is just priming ourselves to practice gratitude. You know, by focusing on our blessings, our joys, we employ a gentler inner voice and we move naturally the focus away from our own shortcomings. And that can be really profound. So those are my big three. I wonder, do you have any tips on how to start a gratitude practice? Yeah, I would I would recommend having a journal by the side of your bed or a piece of paper and every single morning writing down five things that you are either grateful for today or that you were grateful for at one point in your life or that you've heard other people talk about being grateful for. It's um, less about inviting for ourselves the ability to just be more thankful and enjoy things and more about priming ourselves for noticing these pockets of joy and these opportunities for beauty, even amidst 
painful experiences. Mm -hmm. I also like the idea of gratitude accountability. So maybe buddying up with a friend or loved one and, you know, committing to a 30-day gratitude morning text exchange, right? So we send each other five things that we're grateful for. And, you know, for extra credit, they can't be repeats of what you said the day before, right? They've got to be a fresh list every day for 30 days. Funny enough, I did that Mm -hmm. once in 2020 when we all became quarantined. I started a gratitude text group. (laughs) I know. It felt really good. I was really happy. Yes. I mean, I think we were collectively, and notice how interesting that was. We were all in lockdown. Mm -hmm. We had no idea what was coming next. There was no, um, you know, vaccination. There was no sense of, you know, when life would go back to quote unquote normal, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And we were noticing intentionally and priming ourselves intentionally to experience more gratitude, more joy, more patience. It's really a beautiful thing. People were learning Mandarin, you know, they were jobless and, you know, had seven of their kids living in this small space uh, for the first time since childhood. And they were, you know, doing all incredible kinds of, of things that they may not have had the pandemic you know, not occurred. So I think of, you know, unfortunate or aversive life events as holding that same weight, including being ghosted. Yes. There are definitely silver linings to all of those things. No question. mm -hmm. Do you have any other advice to give people who have been ghosted? Yes. The first thing I would say is to first and foremost, confront And really accept the reality that you aren't receiving the clarity and communication that you want, need, and deserve, right? Like, and inherently that is inappropriate, wrong, and invalidating. The other piece is to remember that we don't need our ghost to demystify why they're doing what they're doing. You know, in other words, closure comes from within, And by continuing to reach out to our ghost, even without any response, what we're doing is inadvertently reinforcing the power that they hold, both for, you know, us and, you know, perhaps for them. They may feel an immense amount of responsibility, and that could further perpetuate their own avoidance. But it it also does something interesting to us where it's, you know, we almost perpetrate ourselves more by believing that others hold the key to our emotional freedom and relief, which is just not true. You know, the other thing I would say is allowing ourselves just to feel whatever it is that comes up. Feelings are not facts, and yet they're still really important to feel, right? Um, Talking to people, friends, family, clergy, a professional, um, but trying to focus more on how to cope with the ghosting rather than trying to make sense of the reasons why, as that, you know, sort of perpetuates that maladaptive link between you and ghost. And then the last thing I would say is giving ourselves the time um, and space that we need to recover. But you know, remembering that when we are ready to put ourselves back out there, that we're not starting from scratch. You know, in fact, we know more now 
than we did before because we were ghosted in terms of our needs, wants, worthiness, and so on. Brilliant. Thank you. Oh, good. (laughs) Brilliant. How can listeners get in touch with you? Listeners are welcome to check out my social media on Instagram. It is therapy with Dr. Josh. That's therapy with Dr. Josh. You can also visit my website at therapywithdrjosh.com where there are links to email me or call me directly. Thank you so much for being here. You're so welcome. Yes. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. It is an honor and pleasure. Thank you for having me on again. And listeners, if you enjoyed this show or any other episode of the Coping with Ghosting podcast, please leave a review. Leaving a review will help other people who have been ghosted discover this podcast. And I truly appreciate your support. Finally, be sure to remember, when you are ghosted, you have more time to connect with yourself and people who have stellar communication skills. You deserve the best.